Will you take your Bibles now and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, as we continue to make our way through this book verse by verse. This morning we will be examining verses 21 through 28 under the heading, Jesus' Authority Over the Domain of Darkness. Follow along as I read the text, Mark 1, beginning in verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee may God add his blessing to the reading of his inspired infallible authoritative and all-sufficient word What an amazing historical narrative, very fascinating. And to think that this demon, and as we will see, all demons, knew exactly who Jesus was. And they were terrified of his authority. What a contrast to human beings that just can't seem to figure out who he is. And they scoff at him. And we're going to see this dynamic play out through Mark's gospel narrative. We know that the Jewish leaders, for example, rejected him. Mark 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Verse 22 goes on to say, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And it's fascinating, as we see throughout the Gospels, many people followed him out of curiosity. And many people followed him to see what kind of goodies they could get from him. How they could benefit physically from him. But they stopped at the point of acknowledging him as the Holy One, the Son of God. When he went to his hometown in Nazareth, Read later on in Mark 6, beginning in verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. It's heartbreaking to witness this same thing today, isn't it? People are blinded by their own innate depravity, They're double-blinded by Satan and all of the schemes that 
he perpetrates upon the people of the world. We read in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that he is, quote, the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we know that as a result of this kind of unbelief, the wrath of God abides upon those who reject Christ. I have family members in that category and many friends, and I'm sure you do as well. It's heartbreaking. Jesus said in John 3, beginning in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. He goes on to say, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Indeed, most men and women love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds are evil. All we have to do is look at the staggering wickedness all around us in our culture, and we see this. The, the stunning moral freefall, the new cultural norms in the realm of morality and basic common sense divide, defies both logic as well as God's moral and physical order of the universe. We see this all around us. The whole LGBTQ and transgender ideologies are not only grossly immoral and irrational and bizarre, but dear friends, these things are satanic. They are satanic to the core. Just the physical appearance of these painted up drag queens betrays a deeply disturbed and depraved humanity. And now what is even more unconscionable is we're seeing children getting painted up like this. I'll not rehearse the long list of evils our country is now enduring. You're well aware of them. I did a lot of that last week. All you have to do is go out in public. Just go to Walmart. You'll see enough depravity there to last you for a lifetime. Turn on your television. Dear friends, Darkness has descended upon our country like never before. But what people refuse to believe is that all of this is ultimately something that God in his sovereignty is allowing to happen, and it's ultimately a result of his curse on man's sin. We live in a fallen world, and God has temporarily ordained to allow Satan to rule this world until Christ returns. Jesus said that Satan is the covert, quote, ruler of this world in John 12, 31. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, we see that he is a, a brilliant and scheming general. And we know that he leads a highly organized demonic host in opposing the people of God. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
And although, according to Hebrews 2.14, Christ's death on the cross, quote, rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, currently we know that he is still allowed to reign and to continue this reign of terror. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this is going to continue to happen until Christ returns. As a master deceiver, we know, according to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, that he can disguise himself as an angel of light. You're going to see this in very winsome, charismatic personalities standing behind pulpits, standing in positions of political leadership, teaching our children in school where they're being indoctrinated in things of Satan. And on and on it goes. Satan is skilled in the power of espionage. He overpowers unbelievers, according to Ephesians 2.2. He's called the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He blinds people to the truth of the gospel, but he also, quote, holds them captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.26. He also attacks believers, especially those in leadership. According to 2 Corinthians 12.7, remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment me, he says. And I might add that it is primarily through the leadership that he gains access to the church and destroys it. And that's what we see in Ephesians 6, 11 through 17 and so forth. And folks, I would ask you, are you aware of how the enemy is influencing you personally and your family? Or do you think that somehow you're above it all? The 17th century Puritan preacher and author Thomas Brooks, he lived from 1608 to 1680, was a man that was very familiar with Satan's devices. And he described the first and foremost device as follows, quote, to present the bait and hide the hook. He goes on to say to present the golden cup and hide the poison to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device, he took our first parents. Genesis 3, 4, and 5 says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. Brooks goes on to say, here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. He goes on to say, there is an opening of the eyes of the mind to contemplation and joy. And there is an opening of the eyes of the body to shame and confusion. He promiseth them the former, but intends the latter, and so cheats them. 
giving them an apple in exchange for a paradise, as he deals by thousands nowadays. Satan with ease puts fallacies upon us by his golden baits, and then he leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise. He promises the soul honor, pleasure, profit, and so forth, but pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be, end quote. Folks, you must understand that as Christians, we are high-value targets for the enemy. He wants to do everything he can to discourage us and to defeat us. So we must be on the alert, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, quote, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. I might add that these schemes are cleverly concealed in our culture. They are devices that appeals to the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh the boastful pride of life. But, dear friends, please hear me. You will not understand any of this unless you know who Jesus is. You must know who Jesus is. Satan and his demons know who he is. The question is, do you really know who Jesus is? And this is the goal of Mark's gospel. To declare Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. He begins in Mark 1, remember, in verse 1, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, again, by way of context, to bring you back to this great passage of Scripture, Mark is writing primarily to a Gentile audience, to Roman believers. Jesus is the one, he is saying, the, the only rightful one to be worshipped and obeyed. Not Caesar, but Jesus. And the proof of this has been presented thus far in Mark's gospel. You will recall that he began by describing the divine forerunner, the herald of the coming king, who was John the Baptist. And then he continued to present Jesus' regal credentials at his baptism where he was coronated as the messianic king and the Holy Spirit descended down upon him. And there he was commissioned by the Father. He was filled with the Spirit. And then next he defeated his archenemy, Satan, in the wilderness. And then he exerted his regal power in building his kingdom, presenting the gospel, calling kingdom citizens to follow him. And that brings us to where we are now here in this text. He is going to demonstrate his authority in three ways. Number one, through his teaching. Number two, through his authority over demons. And finally, through his power to judge evil. And I hope you will agree with me as we examine this text. This is of such profound comfort to know that our God reigns, that he has a plan, that he has authority over all things, and to see that this, shall we say, is a light at the end of a tunnel of darkness. Now, let me give you the context. According to the other Gospels, we know that Jesus has been run out of Nazareth. We read about that in, 
in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And so now he's going to go from Nazareth about 35 miles uh, northeast to Capernaum. So on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. There at Capernaum and Bethsaida, another town close by, and Chorazin uh, was where Jesus spent the majority of his ministry. Those of you going to Israel with me in October, we will see all of this. The text says there in verse 21, they went into Capernaum, which is Capernaum. It means the village of Nahum. This is where Nahum the prophet originated. And this was the perfect place for Jesus to minister in Galilee because it was made up primarily of Jews. Most of the people that lived there during the first century were fishermen and farmers and merchants and officials serving Rome, including tax collectors. But it was also a very important commercial city on the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. Uh, it was the main trade route from the Mediterranean Sea all the way over to Damascus. In fact, at Capernaum, you can go up on the Golan Heights just a little bit, and up at the top, you can look out across, and you can see a little green area, and you can see Damascus. Historians tell us that at that time, it had a walkway that was about a half a mile long that was on top of about an eight-foot seawall, and numerous piers would jut out from that, about 100 feet long, for the fishing vessels to come in and to find harbor. And this also was the place where Peter and Andrew and James and John uh, were called by Jesus to follow him. And this is where Matthew was collecting the taxes and gave it all up for a career change. But Capernaum was also well-suited because it was it was far enough away from some of the other Hellenistic cities that Jesus didn't have to worry about some of the political infighting that would occur with his ministry because he would be considered an affront to Rome. He was, or Capernaum I should say, is about, about five miles west of, or I should say, about five miles west of Nazareth was another city that was far enough away from Capernaum for Jesus to be safe. And that city was Sephorus. Uh, and that was a large fortress city in Galilee um, where uh, Herod Antipas, under Roman rule, had first established his capital government. So that was one of those Roman cities they wanted to stay away from. Um, it was called the Ornament of Galilee. Also, it was far enough away from Beit Shan, uh, which we will visit in Israel. That was a Roman city, had a massive uh, amphitheater. It is still there to this day. Um, very wicked city, place of idol worship. That, by the way, was the place where uh, the Philistines, after they had found King Saul and his sons, took the bodies and impaled them and put them on the wall there at Beit Shan. But it was also north of Tiberias, which was founded by Herod Antipas, named in honor of the second Roman emperor, Tiberius. Again, a very Roman city. So this is where Capernaum is. It was the divinely appointed center of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And we read in the text, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. Synagogue in the original language, it 
It's a Greek term that literally means a gathering place of worship. A little bit of background here. Um, by the way, that synagogue still exists. Uh, it's underneath another synagogue that was erected sometime probably around the third or fourth century. But below that is the basalt uh, walls of the first century synagogue that the archaeologists have found that Jesus would have been in. But when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple in 605 BC, obviously the Jews had no place to worship. So they began to worship together in small groups. And when they returned and rebuilt the temple, they even continued to do that. And traditionally, these synagogues were formed wherever there were at least 10 Jewish men in the community. And there would be a number of synagogues in larger cities as there are today. So in verse 21, we read, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he began to teach. Now this was customary with the Jewish people. They would allow certain qualified men to come and to teach, to exposit a particular passage of scripture. And they would have certainly allow visiting rabbis to do this as they did Jesus. But they especially were glad to have Jesus because word of him had spread because of what he had been doing with all of his miracles. And so I'm sure it was a packed house that day. And what we're going to see now, dear friends, is Jesus demonstrates his authority as the rightful king, number one, through his teaching. Notice, he entered the synagogue and he began to what? He began to teach. It doesn't say he began to dialogue to try to find common ground. It doesn't say that he began to have a conversation. It doesn't say that he was there to raise funds for his ministry empire. He did not come there to entertain. He did not come there to tell stories or to somehow, as the old country preacher said, scratch out a spot and pitch a fit. That's not what he did. He came to teach. And it says they were, in verse 22, amazed at his teaching. Doesn't say they were amazed at his cleverness. It doesn't say they were amazed at his cultural relevance. They weren't amazed at his hairstyle or his wardrobe or his Hollywood savvy. They were amazed at his teaching. Beloved, once you yield to the culture, the authority of Scripture will be the first thing to go. As I have written elsewhere, quote, sola scriptura is replaced by sola cultura, as Os Guinness quipped. That's what we're seeing these days. Gone are reverent worship services where people know they are entering into the presence of an infinitely holy God. Gone, too, is any focus on the majesty of God revealed in his word. Slick entrepreneurs with sufficient panache to attract the subjective individualistic culture have largely replaced great Bible expositors. Doctrine is out, relativism is in. 
But what is really ironic is this. The entrepreneurs who have tried to make the church more relevant to the culture by selling a spirituality disconnected to biblical truth have instead made it utterly irrelevant. Even the most arrogant, politically correct, morally bankrupt millennial snowflake can spot a superficial, worthless, phony religious sideshow when they see one no matter how good the band or delicious the coffee. So, Jesus is on a mission now. He's on a mission to make disciples. He is building his church. And the text says, For he was teaching them as one having authority. The the term in the original language carries the idea of, of, of ruling authority or having dominion over a particular domain. Then it adds this, and not as the scribes. Now, the scribes were the main teachers of Israel. They emerged on the religious scene in Israel in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ordinary people back then just didn't have access to the copies of Scripture. They were just way too expensive, and so they depended upon the scribes. And so the scribes were called rabbis, which means honored ones, because they would read and teach them the scriptures. But by the first century, the scribes no longer exposited the scriptures. They primarily quoted the, the convoluted and obscure musings and far-fetched mystical allegories of other rabbis. So they did not speak with authority. By the way, dear friends, none of us have any authority. I have no authority apart from the authority of God's Word. Remember that. So when Jesus comes along, he just starts explaining the Word of God to them and applying the Word word of God to them. And so they were amazed. The, The term means... In the original language, what it means to, to us, it could be translated astonished. They were astounded. In fact, the term is used in ways in the original to describe a person being astounded to the point of losing one's mental composure. To put it in our vernacular, they were blown away. They, they were absolutely blown away. They were speechless. They were dumbfounded with what they were hearing. He spoke the truth with supernatural clarity and with authority and with power and precision. Folks, can you imagine what it would have been like to hear Jesus teach? Someday we'll know, right? Someday we'll know. I I was thinking about this. You remember when he spoke to the confused men on, on the road to Emmaus? Remember that? Luke 24. Verse 27, he says that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow, I wish I had a recording of that. Verse 32 says, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And in verse 45, it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So that's what was happening here in Capernaum and the synagogue. You know, as a young man, I grew very tired of glib sermonettes for Christianettes. 
Many of them were as shallow as a sugar glaze on a Krispy Kreme donut. And equally as nourishing, or shall I say malnourishing. And many times the sermons that I would hear were as boring as watching a soccer game without a ball. I mean, what's the point? You ever been in those services where you, you hear a sermon, it's like, what is the point? And I would hear topical ramblings, people making the obvious more obvious. And by God's grace, I became convicted that I just wasn't growing. I was frustrated. I was hungry for the things of God, and I, I, I really didn't even know how to put it into words. I was spiritually malnourished. I was spiritually out of shape. And so I remember very vividly one day in particular crying out to God for help. God, there must be something more to Christianity than this. I was tired of the one, two, three method of preaching. One verse, two jokes, and three stories. And God answered my prayer and he put me in touch with a fiery young Bible expositor named John MacArthur, who served with my father on the board of Moody Bible Institute many years ago. And God used his expositions of the word to utterly change my life. The word came alive, and I couldn't get enough of it. I began listening to other expositors David Martin, Lloyd-Jones, Eric Alexander, John Murray, R.C. Sproul, and the, name goes, the, the names go on and on. I began reading these great men of God, and I began to get nourished. But what's interesting is that just increased my appetite more and more, and to this very day, I have an insatiable appetite for the Word of God. began reading great theologians, especially the Puritans. I know some of you probably get weary of my illustrations with Puritans because they speak a little bit different than we do, right? I mean, we've dumbed down the English language to a point that it, it's, it's hardly English anymore. But dear friends, how much more amazing to have heard Jesus teaching. By the way, not all the scribes over the course of history were full of hot air like these guys were in Jesus' day. In fact, God brought about a great revival in Israel through a scribe. His name was Ezra, a man who, according to Ezra 7 and verse 10, quote, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. If you go to Nehemiah 8, you'll hear a description of a six-hour sermon. You think I preach long. A six-hour sermon. The text tells us in Nehemiah 8 and verse 2 that all of the people gathered together, all those that were old enough to understand, they took the babies out so they wouldn't be a distraction. They must have had a huge nursery. And so they're all there. They're all gathered now. And they stood for Ezra's exposition, Nehemiah 8.8 8 says, he read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. The word translating in 
or, or I should say comes from a Hebrew root that means to make distinct or to, to declare. And so what Ezra did was to literally explain or exposit the meaning of God's word so the people could understand it and apply it to their lives. And the response was to be expected. In verse 9 it says, For all the peoples were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Beloved, herein is the power of the word of God to those who are humble and want to hear it. And herein is also the importance of doctrinal expositional, exegetical preaching. Exposit means to, to explain or to expound in a detailed manner. And therefore, expository preaching, as you will hear from this pulpit and others like this one, is nothing more than, than a doctrinal proclamation of the Word of God derived from an exegetical process that is concerned not with the wisdom of man, but with what God has said, with the authorial intent of the passage, with the revelation of God. And therefore, expository preaching is going to reveal the God-intended meaning of a text, which will also be linked to other passages of Scripture and other great doctrines, other great theological truths, and then when the text has been accurately explained, it will be applied to the contemporary issues of life with passion. And I might add that apart from the faithful proclamation of divine truth, preachers have no authority, they have no power, and Christians will be banished to an island of spiritual infancy. And we see this all the time. That's why Paul said in Colossians 1:28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So Jesus was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. But there was at least one guy in the congregation that day that just couldn't handle it. By the way, I've seen that in this place before. Every now and then somebody will get up in the midst of the service and you see them head for the door. Usually they wait until I begin to pray at the end and then they bolt. But in this case, there was a guy that just, he just couldn't handle it. So in verse 23 we read, just then... There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, before we look at this more closely, I want to say that this demon that dwelled within this hypocrite was absolutely horrified. You might say that he trembled in horror at the word of God. Dear friends, we too should tremble not in horror, but in reverence at the word of God. I think of Isaiah 66, the final chapter in Isaiah's prophecy, a summary text where God makes it clear that he's not impressed with a temple of stone. No matter how exquisite what he's impressed with are worshipers who are humble and contrite of spirit and who tremble at his word. 
In fact, in Isaiah 66, we read this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. In other words, he spoke it out of nothing. But, he says, to this one I will look. In other words, this is what gets my attention. This is where I will focus my eyes and my blessing. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. In other words, to the person who is conscious of his own sin and his own unworthiness and amazed at God's grace towards him and therefore a person who longs to hear the word of God and to obey the word of God for the glory of God. So God abides in the most humble dwelling, one that fears him with a reverential awe. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and, catch this, we will come to him and make our abode with him. What an amazing promise to have the triune God dwell within us because we love him and keep his word. So Jesus first demonstrates his regal authority through his teaching. Secondly, through his authority over the demons. Now let's look at this more closely. First of all, a little historical background. Apart from the Genesis 6 verses 1 and 2 account of of the Nephilim, there are no recorded instances of demon possession in the Old Testament. And there are only two accounts in the book of Acts, in Acts 16 as well as in Acts 19. But when Jesus comes to earth, all of a sudden in the Gospels, we see numerous instances of demon possession. Why? Because suddenly the supernatural light of his glorious presence exposed them. They were there in the Old Testament, but now they're being exposed. We can't see them, but Jesus can. And they can see him. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? So Jesus' presence is kind of like going into an old cellar. And you flip on the lights and you watch the cockroaches run here and there to get out of the way. That's what's going on here. The light of his presence. They're fleeing in, in terror. Now, let's go to the scene. Imagine the drama here in this synagogue. The people are absolutely transfixed on this teacher, this miracle worker who is unpacking the word of God in ways that they have never heard before. I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop. And then suddenly, some demon-possessed guy goes medieval. He begins shouting. It's probably someone that they all knew. He was probably, may have been, I should say, the chairman of the Sunday school department. We don't know. You know, had there been some indication that he was a demoniac, he would have been ceremonially and morally unclean, and he wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue. But somehow he was in there. 
Now remember, by this time, Judaism had developed satanically, a very satanically inspired religious works righteousness system. And folks, this is where demons thrive. This is absolutely hometown for them, especially in apostate Judaism. And I might also add apostate Christianity. And Satan and his minions, they they don't want to attack a church. They want to join it so that they can destroy it. Paul warned the Ephesian elders, remember in Acts 20, beginning in verse 28, be on guard, he said, for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. You will recall in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 14, Paul describes false teachers in the church. He said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Then he adds this, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants who disguise themselves as angels of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. And then Paul told Timothy, young pastor Timothy there in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Folks, all you have to do is turn on the television television, and you'll see this all over the place. All you have to do is look at, look at the Vatican, look at the Rome, look, look at Rome, look at the, the Pope, the bishops, the cardinals, all of those that are a part of that apostate religious system. So these demons are vile creatures, and they will influence leaders. They will inhabit those people who especially are great politicians and great pastors and seminary professors and Hollywood elites and all of those kinds of celebrities. And those people will endeavor to thwart the purposes of God and damn the souls of men, some wittingly, many unwittingly. Jesus gave an example of this with the Pharisees. Remember in John 8, beginning in verse 44, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Now, we know that historically, Satan and his minions operate primarily in the context of twin evils, human government and false religions. You will recall in Daniel 10 when Michael fought against the prince of Persia, that demon that was basically influenced the Persians. He was called the prince of the kingdom of Persia in verse 13. So this demon now in Capernaum had somehow inhabited this wicked man 
and he is horrified at the sight of the Son of God, and he's infuriated with what Jesus is preaching. Now I ask you, can there be any greater proof that Jesus was who he said he was than this right here? That he was the Son of God. It's fascinating, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the demons never attacked him. In fact, what we see is they were always terrified at his presence. And they were always infuriated by him because they know that he is the one that created them. They know that he is unmatched, that he is invincible in his sovereign power over all things. He knows that he is the one that cast them out of heaven. And they know that he is the one that one day in judgment will cast them into hell, into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So they know exactly who Jesus is. And by the way, we're going to see this all through the Gospels. In Mark 3, verse 11, it says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! Mark 5, 11, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And the demon said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Those of you going with me to Israel, remember that. We're going to see where this happened. Now, here in Mark, we see something very similar happening in this dramatic scene. Because here, when this demon sees the glorious presence and the power of the Son of God, and he realizes that divine omnipotence and omniscience is standing before him, he's terrified. And this is why Mark records it. Verse 23, again, a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit he cries out, it says. The term in the original language means to shriek or to scream in horror. Can you imagine that in the middle of a service with Jesus teaching? So somehow this demon uses the voice of the person that 
he inhabits and screams with a loud voice. Uh, as a footnote, I, I've had this happen to me on several occasions when I've witnessed to people who I discover are demon-possessed. It's terrifying. And I might also add that their voice is not human. It's not human. Verse 24, here's what he says. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? I'm sure he said that in a scornful way. Because people mocked Jesus because he was from Nazareth. That's like going to Harvard and saying, yeah, I'm from Ashland City. And he says, have you come to destroy us? It's interesting, the use of the plural pronouns, we and us, indicates that he's asking on behalf of all of his demon buddies. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, he says. Now, the, this demon's question is perfectly in order because demons understand from Scripture why Jesus came. We read about this in 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for the purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So that's a very fair question. Plus, word had already gotten around who Jesus was and what was going on. And that Jesus had already defeated Satan in the wilderness. Matthew records a similar response in Matthew 8, 29. What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This demon knows that judgment's coming. So as Jesus demonstrates his messianic authority through his teaching and his authority over demons, but finally through his power to judge evil. Notice verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Be quiet. The term that was used to describe a putting a muzzle on an animal so it can't open its mouth. To put it in our modern vernacular, Jesus said, Shut up and come out of him. No dialogue, no exorcism, just raw power. By the way, believers are never instructed to rebuke demons. We're never instructed to bind the demons, all this silly stuff I hear from time to time. We're never instructed to exorcise demons with some ritualistic gobbledygook and some sensational formulas. That's a bunch of nonsense. Not, not only is that stupid and unbiblical, dear friends, it is dangerous. You remember in Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva, the priests, they tried to cast out an evil spirit out of a man by the power of, quote, Jesus whom Paul preaches, he says. And then we read this, the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Acts 19, 13 and following. I mean, amazing, isn't it? One demon beats the stuffing out of these guys, strips off their clothes and sends them packing like a bunch of scalded dogs. No, as believers, dear friends, we don't conduct exorcisms. We simply unleash the gospel. 
we're all about evangelism. Let's let the Spirit of God do what He can do, what He alone can do. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when the Spirit of God takes up residence within a heart, the demons are going to be sent packing like scalded dogs. So Jesus doesn't respond to all of the hysterical drama, all of the hysterics, all of the theater that the demon is putting on. Instead, he just says, be quiet and come out of him. Verse 26, throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Obviously, the demon didn't want to leave, but he knew he was no match for the Son of God. And beloved, that is power. That's the power of the Jesus that has saved me and that I serve and that has saved you and that you serve. Later, Mark will reveal a similar scenario that occurred right after Jesus' transfiguration. Let me give this to you because it's important. Mark 9, verse 17, And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they, couldn't not, they could not do it. And Jesus answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It was often thrown on him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, he came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. It's fascinating, even here in Mark's account of the demon-possessed man in the synagogue, despite the demon's violent thrashing about as he exited the man, we see that he did no harm to him. We read about this in Luke's account, Luke 4, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. So, verse 27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere and to all the surrounding district of Galilee. So now the great debate of who Jesus is begins to spread all through the region. Well, let me challenge you this morning, dear friends. Do you know who Jesus really is? The demons do. I hope you do. And everyone who comes to Christ in saving faith should first, like the demons, be terrified of his judgment. 
But you should also be amazed at his authority and his power and his love and his grace. And you should cry out to him for forgiveness and repent and believe in him. And only then will you run to him as your savior and as your king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the eternal truths of your word that are so relevant to us even in this day. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will cause each of us to grab hold of these things and to live them out that others might come to saving faith in Christ and that each of us might enjoy all of the blessings that are ours in Christ, that we might experience the soul-satisfying joy of your presence as we serve you in this wicked world. And if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it is to truly be born again, I pray that you will bring conviction and salvation that even today they will experience the miracle of the new birth. We commit it all to you for the sake and for the glory of Jesus. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church, or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.